Returning to the issue of speaking in tongues. Some of you, I know, have a fairly sheltered Christian life. Your experience may all be maybe within the context of this church if you were brought up here, or maybe just in the context of a few more conservative Baptistic churches, and the issue of tongues is no struggle for you. But if you were to peek above the parapet for a moment at the broader range of evangelical, uh, the evangelical world, what you would see would be an influx, a flood, a movement which is only growing. If you turned on your TV and flipped to one of the numerous channels which are supported by the the uh, gifts extracted from those around the nation and around the world and driven by a claim by virtually everyone on those channels that God is revealing to them certain tongues or God is manifesting in them certain powers of the Spirit to speak in tongues and prophecies along with it. If you were to ever travel to virtually anywhere on the mission field, if it's third world or if it's Eastern or Western Europe or if it's Latin America, you would find a very different flavor of Christianity where seemingly the entire world, the entire Protestant church has been infected by the notion of a modern manifestation of speaking in tongues. Far, far from the majority view being that which the church held for so many years that the gift of tongues has ceased. In the last 125 years, there has been an enormous groundswell of belief or of understanding that somehow God has resurrected this gift in our own day. And so as we come to 1 Corinthians 14, it is eminently important as a passage of Scripture in terms of where modern evangelicalism is today and the encroaching, uh, uh, encroaching ideas from every corner into our own Christian life. According to the confusion that surrounds us in every Uh, arena, and even the confusion that may dwell in some of your hearts as you have friends and colleagues, faithful Christians who are endeavoring to live out their faith in areas of life, and yet they claim at some level to participate in the speaking of tongues, maybe in a public worship service, maybe just in the privacy of their own prayer closet. And so we come to a passage today that addresses all of those issues. I would call it a controversial passage, except for the fact that so few people are willing to even debate it anymore. It has essentially become a given in modern churches. So few people willing to challenge the notion that, that what people claim today in their experience as speaking in tongues... So few people are willing to challenge that that might be a spurious and false claim. They're intimidated by accusations 
that those who criticize the modern charismatic movement are opposed to the Holy Spirit. They're intimidated by the accusation that if you are not accepting of tongues, that somehow you're just too inhibited by your own fears of letting go and really releasing yourself to the fullness of the power of the Spirit. They're too intimidated by the accusation that somehow you're being divisive or unloving. You bring up the subject with many people, they will quickly change it because they don't want to be caught dead by anyone having discussed tongues in a negative way. To show any level of disapproval in any way is a sure way to alienate yourself from many modern evangelicals and probably to hurt your church's chances of attracting large crowds. And so the default position is to either be open to certain manifestations of the charismatic gifts or at least to be silent if you have any doubts. But we don't have that option. We don't have that option, first of all, because of our great love and concern for the church, because we are always burdened that the church would be faithful to God in every way. And so it's contrary to being unloving, it is the very loving thing which drives us to want to understand this issue in the clearest possible way. But secondly, we're compelled to speak to this issue because the Bible speaks to it. And it speaks to it with clarity. And as we've been seeing here in 1 Corinthians 14, any careful consideration of this chapter points unavoidably in one direction. That all that passes under the modern tongues movement does not resemble anything like what Paul qualifies as an authentic and legitimate use of tongues in the church. And so we conclude that since this gift is not evident today, God, for His divine purposes, has caused the gift of tongues as well as the gift of prophecy to cease from being operative in the modern church. Now, if you want to If you wanted to just boil down what Paul has to say here and summarize the essential uh, thrust of this chapter, if you wanted to clarify the issue of tongues in your mind, it is basically this. No one benefits from that which they do not understand. I mean, that's essentially Paul's argument. No one benefits from that which they do not understand. And since tongues without interpretation cannot be understood by anyone, there's absolutely no benefit with speaking in tongues if they're not interpreted. That's the issue. The whole issue is benefit. The whole issue is building up. The whole issue is edification. This is essentially how Paul summarizes things right in the middle of this chapter, chapter 14, verse 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. This is essentially what the chapter is about. 
This is essentially everything he said from the beginning of chapter 12. Everything that is summarized there in the core passage of chapter 13. When it comes to the issue of love, the cardinal reason why we exhibit and why we participate in spiritual gifts is so that we have an outlet to be able to love others. The whole purpose why gifts were given, he says in chapter 12 verse 7, was for the upbuilding or for the benefit of everyone else for the common good, as he says there. In no way then does tongues without interpretation ever fit that criteria. Never does tongues without interpretation ever fit that criteria because no one can benefit from what he doesn't understand. And that includes even the person, by the way, speaking in tongues There's no such thing as edification or building up in a spiritual sense that does not involve your mind. Or another way to say that is there is no such thing as sanctification, becoming more like God, becoming more conformed to the image of Christ, taking on the mind of God. There's no such thing as sanctification apart from truth. This was Jesus's prayer, you remember, in John 17. God, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. This is the way that Paul uh, defines edification and building up in Ephesians chapter 4. It's until we all come to the fullness of the stature of the knowledge of Christ. And so edification and upbuilding in a spiritual sense does not happen apart from understanding. And every paradigm that would seek to establish edification in any other way, in any kind of mindless way, any kind of empty way, is a false and a spurious understanding of edification. What God is seeking, what is useful in the church is that which edifies and that which builds up others. And Paul's whole argument here is that that building must, it must involve your understanding. It must involve your understanding. Not only that, it involves your whole heart and mind and soul and strength because that is the essence of all the law and all the prophets. That's so important for us to grasp because so many people have taken this chapter and taken Paul's arguments against tongues in the church. And they've twisted it around to be some sort of argument in support of tongues in private use. And many of these people acknowledge that even in private use, people who supposedly speak in tongues do not understand what they're saying. But they... They construct a system where people, these people, are still somehow edified and built up spiritually by the mindless use of tongues. They have an understanding of worship. They have an understanding of, of singing. They have an understanding of, of, of uh, prayer. They have an understanding of edification that doesn't involve your mind. And so they try to force that interpretation into Paul's words in this chapter. But as we began to see last week, that doesn't fit. Because Paul's whole point is that no one can benefit from that which he doesn't understand. And that includes 
even you, if you're trying to speak in tongues. Otherwise, verse 14, Paul says, your mind is unfruitful and you gain no benefit, even if you're speaking in tongues. People have endeavored to make what is essentially an argument of this chapter against tongues into some sort of encouragement from Paul for the use of private prayer languages by essentially isolating a few of Paul's statements from the rest of the context of what he says and ripping them from their context to build a partial argument. But we're not seeking that. We're not here to have superficial interpretations, shallow understandings of what Paul has to say here. We're taking the time to understand the whole of his argument, weighing all of his statements along with everything else that he says. So we do not fall into the interpretive trap of isolating one verse from all the rest. To that end, we've been trying to follow the reasons why Paul says he's essentially opposed to the use of uninterpreted tongues, and he would prefer gifts such as prophecy. He essentially says that in verse 1, pursue love, desire spiritual gifts, and especially that you may prophesy. Desire spiritual gifts that can be loving, spiritual gifts that can bring benefits, spiritual gifts that can bring understanding. And in light of that, he goes on to begin to explain in verse 2 all the reasons why he's opposed to tongues. Beginning, first of all, in verses 2 and 3, he says he's opposed to tongues because it ignores others. It ignores others. If you're speaking in a tongue and it's not being interpreted, you are not speaking to anyone. You're completely ignoring them and ignoring their needs, as opposed to prophecy, which he says in verse 3, speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And Paul says the tongue speaker speaks not to men, but to God. He's not suggesting that somehow that is desirable. He's contrasting it with what what is desirable. He, He uses that phrase, speaking to God, or sometimes it's translated before God, particularly if you're a Greek grammarian here, particularly whenever he has an anarthrous use of, of uh, theo here in the, uh, uh, this indicative sense. Whenever he uses it in the anarthrous sense, it's often translated not to God, but before God or in the eyes of God. And that's what he's essentially saying here. Look, you're not really benefiting anyone. You're not really, you're not really consoling anyone. You're not upbuilding anyone. You're not encouraging anyone, which is what prophecy does. The only person he's suggesting who could ever possibly understand what might be in your mind is God. And the implication is that's not helpful. It's not helpful. He doesn't, God doesn't need your words to understand what's in your heart. And so speaking to Him in words that no one can understand are useless. 
So it ignores the people who are around you. It ignores their needs. Secondly, he's opposed to it because it's selfish. That's what he He's talking about in verse 4, you're just building up yourself. That word build up can have a positive or a negative meaning depending on how it's used. For example, back in chapter 8, Paul talked about building up someone in order to sin more. But here he's talking about building up yourself for the purpose of attention or building up yourself for the purpose of self-interest or notoriety or prominence, whatever it is. He's saying that's all that tongues accomplishes when it's uninterpreted. Thirdly, he says he favors prophecy and opposes tongues because tongues requires interpretation. Verse 5, now I want you all to speak in tongues, but we know this is a qualified wish, as he says, because he immediately says if you speak in tongues, someone would need to interpret it. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. So he's really saying, look, I wish you all spoke in tongues, but only if all that you said was interpreted. It's a qualified wish. Like so many of Paul's wishes in Scripture, he knows that this isn't possible. He knows that this isn't God's will. He's already established that not everyone is a prophet. Not everyone speaks in tongues. It's kind of like when Paul says, look, I wish myself a curse for the sake of my countrymen. Or when he says back in chapter 7, look, I wish you all were single like I am. I mean, he knows that that is not God's will and he knows it's not a reality. In some senses, he knows it wouldn't be the best thing for the church. He knows that That the church would die out in a generation if they were all single, right? But Paul uses this, as he does in those other places, for the sake of argument. For the sake of making a point. It would be great if you all spoke in tongues, but only if it was always interpreted. Because only then would others be edified. And by the way, he... He'll say down in verse 13, he will already assume that if you're speaking in tongues, you couldn't interpret it yourself. You wouldn't know what you're saying. In fact, later on, he'll restrict the use of tongues in the latter part of the chapter precisely because he anticipates that oftentimes there won't be a single person anywhere in the church who could interpret it. It's interesting That while most modern charismatics, in most modern contexts, they just completely ignore the whole need for interpretation. But in those few contexts where there have been those who claim to have the gift of interpretation, even then, their interpretations are often found to be competing Or at variance with one another. People have claimed to have the gift of interpretation. And taken by themselves to listen to tongues speech on a recording. Were then asked to give their interpretation. And their interpretations were all at odds with one another. Making it pretty clear that they were just making up their interpretations. As much as the people speaking in tongues are just making up the sounds which come out of their mouth. And yet we're told not, we're not supposed to scrutinize. We're not supposed to criticize. Scrutinize the Bible. Give your attention 
to guarding that doctrine and understanding it accurately. But when someone stands up to claim to speak by God with tongues, do not scrutinize. Otherwise, you'll be labeled as unspiritual. But we'll ask questions. We will examine. Because Paul's instructions here are clear. And because so much that goes today under the name of tongues has no coherence or correspondence to what Paul says here. So the point is that tongues is less helpful, it's less edifying, it's less loving because it has to be interpreted. That brings us this morning to Paul's fourth reason for rejecting tongues and preferring prophecy because uninterpreted tongues, he says in verse 6, has no benefits. I mean, it just... If you've understood what he said so far, this just makes sense. And he uses an illustration from his own life, a a sort of hypothetical situation, to show that the gift of tongues imparts no benefit if it doesn't impart understanding. He says in verse 6, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching?" And the clear implication is, I can't benefit you. There is no benefit at all. It's not that there may be some. It's not that there could be uh, some small spiritual benefit that you could in some way separate out from the, the potential mental benefits, that there's some sort of spiritual benefit Or at least some sort of emotional benefit. Paul's implying there's none. There is no profit. There is no benefit. If there's no understanding. It was incredible. It's even incredible today. uh, But like the Corinthians. Who were putting such a premium on the experience of speaking in tongues. And a whole bulk of people it seems. Speaking them at the same time. And yet no one. Not even the speaker. Understood anything that was being said. And yet somehow in their minds. They had concluded that this was worthwhile. Paul says it isn't. There's no benefit unless, he says, someone brings you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. It's interesting, he uses those uh, terms. Some people have, uh, have concluded that Paul is here using companion gifts. He's talking about, for example, in revelation and knowledge, those spiritual gifts he's already mentioned back in chapter 12, but they're internal gifts. They're They're gifts that are given to certain people that are not articulated or I should say they are not spoken. They're given to people internally in their thoughts and in their hearts. But then externally they are proclaimed by means of prophecy and means of teaching. And so some people say, well, what Paul's doing here is he's putting together companion gifts so that revelation shows forth in proclamation by prophecy. And knowledge shows forth in proclamation by teaching. And by extension, tongues, if it's ever given, would need to have the companion gift of interpretation if it has any hope of benefiting anyone. 
Well, regardless of how all these gifts work together, the point is clear. No matter what the spiritual gift, without understanding, there's no benefit that could possibly come from it. Because sanctification and edification is a function of truth. And unless there's a way to understand what's being said, Paul says he will always oppose the use of tongues. There's a fifth reason Paul gives for why he opposes tongues and prefers prophecy, because tongues, if not interpreted, has no purpose. It has no purpose. I mean, if it can't convey any meaning, then tongues can serve no useful purpose at all. And to engage in tongues is vain, it is empty, and it's senseless. And he he makes his point, beginning in verse 7, with a series of analogies, talking about, first of all, musical instruments, whether it's the wind uh, instruments like flutes or string instruments like a harp. They are expected to make sensible sounds. Even if lifeless instruments, he says, such as a flute or a harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So unless the sounds follow recognizable rules, a melody will not emerge and no one will recognize, no one will be able to respond. We understand music involves basic structures, rhythm and intervals, all made up with groups of notes that are intended to be enhancing each other. But at the same time, we understand that noise in and of itself is useless. It's useless. I mean, instruments when they're properly played, can be powerful. Notes that are sounded can evoke joy or they can express sorrow. But if the, if the flute is just blown or the harp is simply plucked at random and in a mindless way, they don't accomplish anything. If anything, they evoke anger and irritation from people. Sounds might come, but the listener wouldn't recognize anything beneficial. And so he couldn't react with either comfort or joy. In other words, it is meaning that turns sounds into music. It is meaning that turns sounds into music. And without meaning, it's nothing but noise. Paul Paul demonstrates this with a second analogy when it comes to the meaningless and annoying and sometimes injurious attempts at mindless noise. If meaning that needs to be conveyed is hidden in random noise, not only is it just sometimes annoying, it may be dangerous, trumpet is Paul's second analogy here, one which was used in military by men who in those days had to communicate across long distances. And so they would give certain cadences to the sounding of a bugle. And this instrument, it was a long metal 
a bell-shaped horn with a mouthpiece. It didn't have the, the, all of the various uh, 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 valves that modern trumpets would have. But still, there were certain sounds that communicated commands either to prepare for battle, to advance, to retreat, to circle back, or any other battle commands. And obviously, if you are blowing in a trumpet and there are no distinct sounds, you're putting many, many lives at danger. The message of God's truth, of course, is just as serious. And the claim to have that message, but to cloak it in meaningless noise, is criminal. Those analogies from musical instruments illustrate Paul's concern concerning language. Language that has no meaning has no value. Otherwise, you're, you're just speaking into the air. That's what he says at the end of verse 9. So with yourselves, if, your tongue, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said for what you're speaking You're speaking into the air. And in verse 10, he makes the application then. That is not just with musical instruments. It is meaning that makes language. He says there are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. In other words, every language that exists, exists to convey meaning. Otherwise, it would not exist. And despite all the many languages, none of them have ever come into existence for any other purpose. And that is true even for languages that God gives through the gift of tongues. If a language has no meaning... It has no purpose, and it's useless. In fact, Paul says just having sounds with no meaning makes you a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to you. Now, if you've ever spent any time in a foreign field or a foreign language, you understand what he's talking about here. It can be frustrating and downright discouraging to live in a place where life is taking place all around you, where conversations are going on and people are interacting and you yourself don't understand anything. I remember when I was in China, this is one of the things that spurred me on to want to learn Chinese as quickly as possible because it just frustrated me to no end to go into my office every day and to have teachers who were constantly talking to one another across their desk and laughing and giggling and, and going all kinds of things were going on and I had no idea what was going on and it frustrated me. And it drove me because I knew that while I was in the room, I may as well not be in the room. I knew that there was a barrier between me and them. I knew that there was an aspect of their life that I could never participate in. And so I might be in a room full of people but feel very, very lonely. You can imagine what a terrible thing that would be in church. If you're coming to church 
and all you're hearing around you is people babbling and something you don't understand. And now what you feel is not closeness to them. What do you feel? Alienation. You feel like a foreigner to them. They feel like a foreigner to you. In the place where you're supposed to be the family of God, what you have are walls erected, barriers put up, relationships cut off, and frustration between people. So Paul says this shouldn't be happening. And so the implication in verse 12, with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Yes, desire spiritual gifts, but let your greatest desire be to minister to others. Let your greatest desire be to benefit them. Let the desire for edifying others guide your desire for gifts and ministry. And so Paul, building on his argument against tongues, gives us a sixth reason why he's opposed to tongues and prefers prophecy. He says in verses 13 through 17, because it's unfruitful. It's unfruitful. I mean, seeing how useless it is to speak a language that no one understands, Paul draws the application directly for tongues. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Pray that you could interpret because a language that has no meaning is a useless language even to you. And that's his point in verse 14. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. My mind is unfruitful. There is no benefit. There is no benefit because there is no understanding. Even the tongue speaker themselves have no idea what they're saying. Therefore, the tongue speaker is useless, even to themselves. John Chrysostom, early church father, says here, See how by degrees, bringing his argument to a point, he signifies that not to others only is such a one useless, but also to himself, if at least his understanding is unfruitful. For if a man should speak only in Persian or any other foreign tongue and not understand what he saith, then of course to himself also will he thenceforth be thenceforth a barbarian, not to another only, from not knowing the meaning of the sound. End quote. I mean, even these early church fathers understood how ridiculous and useless it would be to try to speak tongues even for your own benefit. Now, charismatics who bother to even study this passage in detail immediately recognize the difficulty that these two verses present to their position. And I have to put your thinking caps on here for just a moment and follow some of the logic because it can become very twisted. In order to keep or in order to hold on to a position of modern day tongues and even to justify a private prayer language, charismatic commentators must find a way around Paul's obvious statements here. 
Gordon Fee, for example, calls verses 13 and 14, quote, a considerable rock in the middle of Paul's argument. He he even notes how it contradicts what he's already said back in verses 2 and in verses 4, where he talks about tongues edifying yourself because Fee has tried to force a spiritual edification into those verses instead of a selfish and fleshly exaltation of yourself. Rather than go back, though, and adjust his understanding according to the context and rightly read verses 2 and 4, what Fee does, what others do, is invent a clever solution. He goes on to read verse 15. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit and I will pray with my mind also. And he suggests that Paul is not talking about something that he does simultaneously. Speaking with his spirit and with his mind. But he wants us to believe that Paul has now started to talk about something he does sequentially. That is to say, at one point, he'll speak with his spirit. And at another point, he'll speak with his mind. In other words, charismatic commentators suggest that what Paul is saying is that he will, at times, pray with his spirit but without his mind... And then at other times, he'll pray with his mind, but without his spirit. Meaning that he will sometimes pray in a tongue and sometimes without a tongue. Now follow this, because to adopt that sequential interpretation in verse 15 means that Paul is just flatly ignoring what he just said in verses 13 and 14 about praying that you could interpret your own tongue speech because otherwise your mind would be unfruitful. He's just told them what to do. And since he knew that most would not be able to interpret, he's not offering a concession. He's offering an alternative. Since you're not able to interpret and therefore your mind would be unfruitful, pray with your spirit and pray with your mind. In other words, based on the inferiority of tongues, you should reject it altogether unless you can personally interpret what you're saying. You should reject tongues and make the choice to pray with your normal language in the fullness of your mind. To adopt the charismatic interpretation here, not only does it ignore Paul's straightforward command in verse 13 to to seek interpretation or to pray with tongues only if you can interpret. It implies that at one point you pray with your spirit but without your mind. And at another point you pray with your mind but without your spirit. And it puts Paul in the place of advocating unspiritual prayers. As if Paul would ever want us to pray without our spirit. As if he would ever want us to love God in a way that doesn't involve all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our soul and all of our strength. 
It's as if you could ever pray. I'm sorry, it's as if you can only ever pray in the Spirit if you pray with tongues. Otherwise, you're just destined to cold and spiritless and consequently lifeless prayers. Only cognitive, mental exercises, but nothing spiritual. But pay attention to this. Paul's not suggesting that the only time you can pray with your spirit is if you happen to be praying in tongues. He is saying that you can have spiritual prayers that incorporate your mind. You're not going to find Paul ever pitting the spirit against the mind in such a way as modern charismatics would want us to think. And the ironic thing is that while they advocate such a view in this passage, in turn, they would accuse modern-day cessationists of being the ones who do that very thing. You can pray with your mind and with your spirit, and when you do so, you're doing what pleases God. When you do so, you're being spiritual. You don't need a mindless experience. You don't need some sort of empty and vain repetition like the Gentiles do. You pray, you sing, you praise, and when you do so, you do it with all of your heart. And in verses 16 and 17, Paul makes it clear that he's not just talking about private prayers uh, in your spirit. He's talking about public prayers. He says, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider or someone who who doesn't uh, uh, know what's going on in your mind, how can anyone say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't uh, does not know what you're saying. You may be giving thanks well enough. Sure, yeah, they're great. You say you're giving thanks, but the other person isn't being built up. You can say, you, you can tell me all day long that you're praising God or thanking God, but what, at the end of the day, it's useless. It's unfruitful. It's unfruitful for them. By the way, it's unfruitful for you. Your mind is unfruitful. It's not surprising then, given everything that he said so far, that his next reason for opposing tongues and preferring prophecy is because it contradicts his own personal example. It contradicts his own personal example. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Now, Paul may simply mean that he speaks more languages than all of them. Uh, That is essentially what the word glossa means. It is more often translated languages than it is tongues outside of this passage. So he may simply mean that that he speaks more languages than all of them, or he may mean that he manifests the gift of tongues more than all of them, in which case his point is that his criticism of tongues isn't rooted in any personal lack of experience or personal lack of understanding of the gift because he's experienced it more than all of them. As a man of great education, he would, uh, we would not be surprised if Paul simply meant that he spoke more languages than all of them. But then as an apostle, we wouldn't be surprised if he had the gift because we understand that the apostles were given numerous uh, supernatural gifts which validated them as spec- spokesmen for God. But even with all that past experience, even with all that ability to speak 
other languages, whether by education or by supernatural means. Paul makes this very compelling statement in verse 19. Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So we assume that when Paul spoke in tongues, he didn't personally have the ability to interpret them. Because he indicates that he could speak 10,000 words, but none of them would be with his mind. He says instead he'd rather speak five words. Five words. Let me just paraphrase that for you, give you the Shane Kohler edition of the Bible right there. Paul's saying, look, I would never ever, ever speak tongues in the church. That's essentially what he's saying. I would never, ever, ever speak tongues in the church. By the way, we assume that when Paul says this, that he is in complete control of when this takes place. You never get the sense that this is some sort of uncontrollable force that just comes over him and he's, he's sort of lifted out of himself and, and uh, overtaken in such a way that he couldn't put a halt to what's going on. As a matter of fact, he says that he would choose to not speak and he would, he would uh, withhold or restrain himself from speaking if he felt it was inappropriate or unhelpful which he says it always will be if it's uninterpreted. Now Paul's final reason for opposing tongues and preferring prophecy is perhaps the weightiest and the most significant. And he indicates it with the language in verse 20. Brothers, don't be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. So he's saying, look, let me, let me just lay, lay it down here. Let me just move you past the shallow, the superficial, the immature understanding of tongues that, that, that somehow makes you think that it's all about you and all about building yourself up. Let me finally give you the mature understanding because Paul says in reality, the mature believer understands that tongues is a sign of judgment against unbelief. It's a sign of judgment against unbelief. And to help us understand this, he quotes from the Old Testament, from the book of Isaiah, chapter 28. In the law, it's written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. We don't have time to fully explore this, but let me summarize the context Paul is quoting from a chapter of Isaiah where Isaiah is confronting Israel over their failure to respond to the message of truth. They had heard the clear proclamation of the truth from the prophets and even from Isaiah himself, but they had rejected it. In fact, they complained that Isaiah's teaching was too dull, was too uninteresting, and was too simplistic. Just over and over and over again, warning after warning after warning. They say precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. 
And they didn't want to hear that. And so they were boasting that Isaiah's message was too simplistic for them. That they were somehow more advanced than all that. That they weren't just a bunch of babies who had just been weaned from their mother's milk. As they say there in Isaiah 28. Isaiah then says to them in their arrogance. If you're so sophisticated. Then God will buy a people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue speak to this people because he says in the next verse he had given them a message of rest and yet they would not hear this is why God was going to begin speaking his word to Israel In foreign tongues. Because they refused to understand when it was shared in the simple language from the prophets. And so he was going to now give it to them in the most difficult languages to understand. As a sign of their rejection and as a sign of their judgment. And in some senses, this was fulfilled when the Babylonians came to overthrow Israel and to take them into captivity. But it wasn't the ultimate fulfillment against Israel. That was just a foretaste. Because the Babylonians, obviously, did not come speaking the Word of God. They they came speaking foreign tongues, but not speaking the Word of God. The ultimate fulfillment of this was on the day of Pentecost when right in the heart of Jerusalem, God chose on the first day of the church that He would proclaim the gospel not first in Hebrew, but in foreign languages. And there were some Jews there from foreign lands who were a part of the dispersia, the diaspora. They were there. They had traveled there for the Feast of Pentecost. And therefore, they knew, they understood the languages that were being spoken. But most of the people in Jerusalem had no idea what was going on. And Luke tells us that all of the rest of them even mocked the believers, saying that they were drunk with new wine. The same sort of hard-hearted unbelief that Isaiah confronted in his day now being exposed again as God spoke to Israel with foreign languages. Paul quotes out of Isaiah to give us this mature understanding of the ultimate purpose of tongues. Their purpose is really to serve as a sign of judgment against Israel's unbelief. In fact, the following paragraph, just a few verses, really, in Isaiah 28, after the one that Paul quotes here, God declares, Behold, I am the one who's laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, as the New Testament quotes it. That verse is picked up by New Testament writers 
a number of times as an indication of the messianic age. And so Paul rightly interprets this passage and sees it fulfilled in his own day because he clearly understood this to be a prophecy about the coming day of the Messiah. And in those days, or I should say in the days of the Messiah, God would fulfill this. He would speak to Israel in foreign tongues, which he did on the day of Pentecost. And it would be ultimately the sign of judgment against Israel, not only for rejecting the simple message of the cross, uh, excuse me, of the prophets, but even now for rejecting the simple message of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so now you understand what Paul means in verse 23. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. See, people read that, and they just immediately say, see, tongues is very useful for evangelistic purposes. I mean, don't you think somebody goes on the mission field, and they've got to speak tongues, and so they speak to people so that they can be saved? And I'm thinking, did you, have you not even read what Paul just said? Or more than that, do you not even see what he says in verse 24. Excuse me, verse, uh, the, the rest of verse 23, when he talks about uh, how an unbeliever who may come in, I'm sorry, I read verse 22. In verse 23, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and an outsider, an unbeliever enters, will they not say that you're out of your minds? I mean, that's not useful for evangelism. If you understand properly what Paul's saying in the book of Isaiah, you understand that he means tongues are a sign of those who will respond in disbelief. And prophecy is a sign for those who will respond in belief. If you don't understand that, then... then then verses 23 through 24 make no sense. They make no sense. He says in verse 24, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. This isn't a sign to draw unbelievers with the gift of tongues. It doesn't mean that tongues is some sort of grand evangelistic tool. In fact, this is exactly what you see in the book of Acts. God demonstrates His judgment against Israel by demonstrating the supernatural ability on the part of believers to speak in tongues, the mockery by those in Jerusalem of the event But then immediately, he follows it up with the clear proclamation in the Hebrew tongue by the Apostle Peter. And it is that which convicts many and leads them to salvation in Christ. Tongues, in other words, are a sign indicating God's intent to cut off unbelievers from further hearing the gospel. Or if he bestows prophecy, it's a sign of his intent to call them and convict them. And possibly save them. That Paul says. That's the right understanding. That's the mature 
understanding. And that's the understanding he wants us to grasp. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Lord, we do not want to be infants in our understanding of any part of your word. We understand that Paul certainly did not want us to be infants in our understanding of tongues. Every doctrine, every statement, every phrase of your word is profitable and and valuable to us for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Let this passage be also. Give us maturity. Give us depth of understanding. Give us soundness of mind. Lest we pursue those things which are both ignorant and, and, and immature. Lest we seek after those things which in our flesh only serve to gratify ourselves, but do not serve you and do not serve your church. Lord, grant us wisdom, grant us insight, grant us discernment, grant us maturity for the sake of your name and for the sake of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.